So there was a pastor who was quizzing a third grade class, Sunday school, on some things they had been learning. And he said, I'm going to say a subject and you tell me a scripture that goes with that subject. Give me a scripture verse. So he's, he's before these little kids and he says, who can give me a scripture verse about baptism? And one of the little kids raises his hand and, and he says, oh, what, what, what's a scripture verse on baptism? And, and the little kid says, unless you're baptized with water and the Holy Spirit, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Pastor says, very good. Now, how about reconciliation? Is there a verse about reconciliation? Who knows a verse about reconciliation? And another little girl raised her hand and he said, yes, Donna. And, and the girl said, um, forgive others as you have been forgiven. He said, Pastor said, very good, very good. And he's really impressed with his third grade class. Uh, so he said, how about, about marriage? Who can give me a scripture verse about marriage? And there was dead silence. And, and nobody had a scripture. And then a little kid in the front row raised his hand. And he said, oh, Jeffrey, go ahead. Give me a scripture about marriage. And little Jeffrey said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <laughs> yeah, that, that's about right, <laughs> I would say. We're going we're gonna to talk about these people this morning who don't know what they're doing <laughs> uh, in getting married. <clears throat> and we're going to do it from the book of Judges. In fact, what we're going to do in August for the sermons on Judges, these two sermons, we're going to look at two couples in the book of Judges. One of them who knew what they were doing in their marriage, and another one who didn't know at all what they were doing in their relationship. And Judges is a great place to do that, to look at this place where we can look at romantic relationships from the book of Judges. Uh, so if you would, please stand as you can. I'm going to read the passage this morning, two passages, one from chapter one of the book of Judges, verses 11 through 15, and then from chapter three, verses seven through 11. This is about one of these couples. Uh, and I'll be reading in the NIV version if you want to follow along or it will be on your screen. Again, this is Judges chapter one, beginning in verse 11. From there they advanced against the people living in Debur, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What can I do for you? She replied, Do me a special favor, since you have given me the land in the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. And then to Judges chapter 3, verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. 
But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathayim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please make yourself comfortable. If you're reading through the Bible and you've ever kind of gotten to this point and read this passage and said, gee, that sounds familiar. Have I read that before? The answer is yes. Because this, this first passage that I read from Judges chapter 1, it's actually not original to the book of Judges. It's actually lifted out of the book of Joshua, pretty much word for word, and plumped down here in Judges chapter 1. So the author actually took something from the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 15, and brought it into his or her book, plumped it down. And you say, why, why would the author do that? Well, it seems like what was going on there in the time when Joshua was written took on greater meaning when the book of Judges was written time later as people saw the career of Othniel unfold. So he became not only the person who took uh, Kiriath Sefer, this, this in, untakeable town, he not only took that city, he also became Israel's first judge. So that's one reason why we see it here. But there's also a role that this passage is playing in the book. The author is putting it there for us to be able to do a comparison and contrast with another judge. You see, there are different ways for us to organize our thoughts. Let's say if you were doing a composition and, or, or some kind of uh, paper or, or some kind of book, and someone said, or, you know, give me an outline for that. And the way that we outline tends to be like this. This is our way of outlining. We, write, we have Roman numeral one, first point, and then Roman numeral two, second main point, and then under those we have Roman, uh, you know, letter A, first sub point under Roman numeral one, and then maybe sub sub point, one, two, three, right? And this is the way we would do an outline if someone said do an outline for us. But that's not the only way that you can organize your thoughts. And it is not the way that many biblical authors organize their thoughts. Instead, what they did very often was something that has now come to be called a chiasm after the Greek letter chi. And often what the Bible writers do is they start with the first theme. They give us a theme, maybe a story, using some particular words. And then what we find is that theme is revisited at the end. So the first thing that the author says kind of has a match, and the match is the last thing that is in the composition. The second thing, which is maybe a different theme or a different kind of a theme or a different elaboration of that theme, then appears as the second to last thing in the composition. The third thing matches the third to last thing. So you get these nested layers all the way to the center. And this is the way very often biblical authors speak. It can happen on different levels, from a, from a verse to a paragraph to a whole book. And it turns out that the author of Judges 
thought this way in spades. For the entire book of Judges is actually one big chiasm like this. And you can go through and, and see these things. The first thing that the, bio, that the author talks about is unity among the tribes. That's his theme. The last thing that the book has in it is a story about the, how the tribes were in disunity. There's a, there's a dismemberment of the tribe. Actually, a literal dismemberment um, that shows this disunity. The second thing that we find in the book of Judges is a story that we just read about the righteous getting of a wife, like how to get a wife righteously. The second to last thing in the book of Judges is a story of the getting of wives unrighteously, en masse. Actually, a whole group of people getting the wives in the wrong way. Okay, what goes on? Then there's a level in which you have to face the Jebusites, the third thing. The third to last thing in the book also brings up this issue of facing the Jebusites. Okay, then uh, what comes next in the level? There is the fourth thing, which is turning to idolatry. Uh, the book takes up that kind of story and gives us an illustration of that. Fourth to last thing in the book, what do we find is rampant idolatry in the book of Judges. So it's fascinating. You can follow these through all the way to the center story of Gideon and his flawed leadership, which is a main theme of the book about leadership in the kingdom of heaven and counterexamples of that. So this is, this is really cool because it shows us that when we're looking at the story of the judges, the first judge has a match in the last judge. So the first judge, which turns out to be Othniel, has a counterpart in the last judge, and the last judge turns out to be Samson. And what happens is that we notice something about these judges. And that is the first judge, who is the best judge, had a secret power, a secret strength. And it turns out that the last judge, who also turns out to be the worst judge, his name was Samson. He also had a secret weakness. And they're one and the same thing. It turns out to be their wives. And so what we've got here is something of a comparison and contrast between this first couple, Othniel and Aksa, and the last couple, Samson and Delilah. And it's interesting, these are the only two wives, I say wives kind of in, in quotes there because Samson never really made it uh, into marriage. He didn't even do that, <laughs> that part right. But sort of common law wife. There, there's this contrast between these two couples and with the best being Othniel and Aksa and the last being Samson and Delilah. And Delilah and Aksa are the only two women who are named in the book as wives of the judges. Only two judges' wives that we have named in the book. So you could see the author is inviting us to compare them and to contrast them. And this is, this is great, friends, because it teaches us about what the author is, is saying about romantic relationships in the kingdom. And romantic relationships and marriages building the kingdom. And so it's a great place here in the book of Judges to look at marriage and to look at the gift of gender that's powering the marriage. And I want to do over these next two sermons is, is look at these two couples, principally the first one today, 
and just give you some pastoral counsel about what's, what's being said here, what the scriptures are saying about marriage in the kingdom, and what these godly kingdom women, these godly, godly kingdom wives are doing for these husbands and what these kingdom husbands are doing for their wives. And the first, the biggest point here is the point I've been making, that there is a secret strength. The secret strength to the best judge is the same as the secret weakness to the worst judge. And that is, again, who they chose to marry, their wives. And you can see it. Samson pursues these Philistine women, right? And ultimately, Delilah, who becomes his undoing. Othniel pursues an Israelite wife, and she becomes the secret of his success. So this is where it's all about. The wives are the key. And so the lesson that the author is giving us from this book is, it's pretty clear, you should not marry outside the people of God. You should not pursue a romantic relationship with someone outside the covenant community of faith, outside the people of God. Now, as soon as I say that, especially in our uh, current cultural moment here, your, your, uh, your hackles might get up and you might say, wait a second, that just sounds a little bit off. It sounds racist. Like, what do you mean? Like, you have to, they had to marry a Jew. And just to be clear here, this is not about racial purity. This is not, uh, you know, going for some kind of ethnic mono, uh, uh, monoculture here. And it's, it's clear because, <clears throat> well, Othniel himself is not really purebred here. Othniel himself is kind of a mixed background. But what we find here is not so much an ethnic, an emphasis on, on ethnic purity, but rather a faith commitment. Because, yes, the Lord began with this family that comes from Abraham and became the Jewish people to begin building his kingdom on earth. But the Old Testament is very careful to give us stories of foreigners, people who weren't Jewish at all, who come into this operation and become key players. And there's a, you know, story after story where we get of people who aren't Jewish at all, but they turn out to be the heroes uh, in the story. You can think of Rahab, you can think of a number of people who come in uh, like this. So what's going on here? It's not about an ethnic purity. It's rather about a faith commitment, about entering into a romantic relationship. And this first message really is for the single folks among us, that what you should do is make sure you're marrying within those faith commitments that you have. And this counsel is repeated in the New Testament. Uh, it's so important that Paul brings it up again, says this, this is important that when you get married, you should marry in the Lord, is the way he puts it, and to marry in the Lord. And so that becomes for us the teaching that when we seek a, a wife, when we seek a husband, we should we should seek them among Christians, and we should not enter into a relationship with non-Christians. Now, I know that when I say that, if you're, if you're single and if you are looking to be married, this can be a burden to you. 
you can say, whoa, 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 wait a second. <laughs> the playing field is limited enough, right? It's hard enough getting a good date. It's hard enough getting somebody, you know, who's nice, who's actually I can, I can jive with. And you're going to put this added restriction on me of saying, oh, well, you should only be going into a romantic relationship with a Christian. I mean, how could you do this to me? Why would you do this to me? Especially these days, right? Very hard uh, to find somebody. Well, I, um, I used to pastor in New York City, a church where a lot of people were coming together in, in romantic relationships, young and old. A lot of people in different situations, a lot of single people who were coming together. And whenever we got some uh, young person who came to me and would say this, they would say, you know, I met this real great person. I'd be like, oh, I'm so happy for you. And this person is great. This guy is terrific. And he's not a Christian, but it's okay because he supports my faith. It's okay because he's good with me going to church. It's not for him, but he's very supportive. And we know we're going to work it out because we really care about each other. Whenever this would happen, I would always just say, I want you to go talk to a couple in our church. I would just, always just send them to a certain couple that, I, that we had in that church. And they were, they were long-term members of the church where they, this man and this woman had gotten married and then one of them became a Christian and the other did not. In this case, it was the husband. The husband became a Christian, the wife did not. And I said, just go talk to them. And she was a great gal, by the way, this, this woman is very cooperative in terms of the family's participation in the church, very reasonable as far as the hard decisions about raising children, which, um, you know, it's very tricky. Uh, but she had her own convictions, and at the same time, she was, she was trying to work with her husband. They were just, she was great. Well, you say, why would I send this person to talk to them then? Because when they did, they would hear from both of them from both of them, and you could hear it in their voice when they talked about it, this profound sorrow of what it's like to live year, years and years with someone whom you cared so much about who could not share that deepest part of who you are. They could not share that deepest core part of who they were. And friends, if you are a Christian, if you really are a Christian, that is your deepest part. All these other things that are very attractive to you and are attracting you to one another, they will pale in comparison with this as the years go on. And to just listen to the, to the tragedy in, these, in this couple's voice as they talked about it, that was pretty much enough. That was usually very effective to help people who are going down this, this path to change their path. Because they told them, you know, this, you know, we're, we're trying to work it out. And again, I said they were very cooperative, but they, they, they just could not share this about themselves. And it, it turns out to be not only, not only damaging to yourself, not only a personal tragedy for you, it's damaging to the kingdom of heaven, places severe limitations on how your marriage can help build the kingdom of heaven, which is, by the way, what your marriage is about. You don't think of it that way, maybe. But that is why God brought the two of you together, because together you, were, you, can, you can better build uh, his kingdom and advance his purposes on the earth.
So let me just look here for the rest of us who are married. Maybe we can draw some counsel here from, from Othniel and Oxa. And so let me just point out three things that we could see that a kingdom wife, a wife here who is centered on the kingdom, gives to her husband. All right, what do we see here? And I'll just point out from, from verses 12 and 13 first. Number one, she gives the incentive. She gives the incentive. See, Aksa and Delilah are contrasted here to show that this is, this is something, uh, they had different incentives for their guys. Okay, Samson's wives provide the incentive to live among the Philistines, as the Philistines. And if you go and you read that story, that's what they did. They, they had it so that Samson was, was constantly going back down into Philistine territory to live as a Philistine. Um, Othniel's wife provided the incentive to further the kingdom of heaven, to further the, God's purposes and the kingdom of God on earth. And you see it in this passage. In fact, it sounds a little bit like a fairy tale, doesn't it? It's like in verses 12 through 13, it's like there's some kind of sword in the stone that, that he has to pull out, or some kind of dragon that he has to slay, some kind of quest he has to go on, and then he wins the maiden. And we might look at that and say, you know, it sounds a little bit like those old fairy tales. Not modern fairy tales, because modern fairy tales we know are all just deconstructions of, of the old fairy tales. You know, you don't hear a, a fairy tale unless it's deconstructed today. But you might look at that and say, well, we're too sophisticated for that now. We need, we, we're, we've moved beyond that. Friends, I think the Bible's point here for us is that there are some things about the fairy tales that we don't move beyond. And this is one of them. For a woman, a man will rise to heights to which he would not otherwise rise. That is, the woman inspires the man to be something more than he would be, to great deeds. She's the prize. And, you know, I, don't, I hope that's not offensive to you as a woman. You have to allow yourself to be the prize. That's not, that's not objectifying you. In fact, it's just the opposite. You have to allow yourself to be the prize for him to win. Because what that does to him is it, is it takes him out of himself and it, and it provides a way for a man uniquely to grow. And if you try to take this away, you are left with a land of lethargic men. And I could give a lot of illustrations of this. I've seen it over and over where you have a guy and, you know, he's not really moving ahead. He can't really go forward. And what happens when the woman comes into his life what happens to that guy? He starts to dress differently. He starts to talk differently. He starts to be able to take responsibility in areas that he had not been able to before. I see this over and over again. And so what, what we're seeing here is this same thing playing out in kind of a, a large way with Aksa as the prize for Othniel. Draws him out into God's purposes for him. And this is an important feature of gender that you do not want to lose, friends. Maybe we're losing it in our society, but do not lose it in yourselves. This is also, by the way, 
why the Bible cannot support monogendered marriage and why we can't support that there, why we can't uh, get behind that uh, cultural movement and say that's something that's good for people. We can't do it because when you have a man with a man, uh, it does not call for quite the same change. And I found this out. I did a study of men who had been involved in monogendered relationships or had same-sex attraction and who later be, got married in, and had an intergendered marriage with a Christian woman and that marriage was stable. And I talked to them and asked them about it. And this is what I heard from them repeatedly. I heard, you know, when I was with a guy, it was spiritually stunting to me. This is them looking back at it. Because it left me where I was. It didn't help me to move forward. This is them talking, by the way. This is not me saying this. This is what I heard from them. And that is a lot of the reason why they chose instead to go into an intergendered marriage. Why? Because she gives the incentive, number one. Number two, verse 14. She gives the pressing she presses him. You know, both Samson and Othniel had wives that pressed them. But it was a pressing in a different, different direction. Samson's wives pressed him to reveal his secrets. They, Samson's wives pressed him to reveal the riddle, to reveal the secret of his strength, to reveal his vulnerability so that he could be exploited. Othniel's wife also pressed him, you notice from this verse, but she pressed him in a different direction. And, you know, it's interesting. You could, you could read this one of two ways, verse 14, when it says that, you know, Othniel um, was pressed by Oxa. What is Oxa doing? Is she being overbearing? Is she being pushy? Or is she doing something proper? Right? And it's, it's interesting that you could read that both ways. Because you know, as a wife, that's the question you're constantly asking. <laughs> you're always asking that same question. Am I being a nag? Am I nagging here? Or am I doing something that I should be doing? Right? Always asking that question. I don't even have to ask you to raise your hands on this. Well, Oxa here gives us insight into this because she helps us to answer that question whether or not she's being a nag or not. And again, remember this Remember what the author gives us, this comparison and contrast. Samson and Delilah, bad. Othniel and Oxa, good. Right? So we know that Delilah was not doing what she should do. Here we have the contrast. We can tell this is something good that Oxa was doing. She's, doing. she's doing well here. And this, friends, tells us a very important point, one point that's very important, at the very least. And that is, a godly wife, a kingdom-centered wife, is not passive. She's not passive here. You know, just because the Bible teaches, and we teach here, that there's an asymmetry to the way men and women love each other, and a wife, a godly wife, is promoting her husband to a place of headship. Just because we teach that, we're not teaching that a woman's voice is not critical to the operation. And woman is not bringing something crucial to what's going on. So if you look at that um, here, um, it shows you that there is not 
a passivity there in a godly marriage. We do not want God, we do not want passive men in this church. I'll tell you straight ahead, we do not want passive men in this church. No less do we want passive women in this church because of what we see here. And this is the way it works out when a, when a woman of the kingdom is willing to press. You know, I, um, I can see this probably my best, my best example. Uh, after we got married, my wife and I, she looked at a certain area of my life that was out of order. It was the, my relationship with my parents. It was in disarray. Let's, let's put it that way. <laughs> and what my wife did was say, you know, I'd like to, like to press him on this. Um, but she quickly found out this was a very tender area for me. So what she did is took a couple of months and she started praying about this. And, and, and then she started to look for how I was motivated. And she found out that the way that I was motivated, the way that Sam kind of perks up his ears, is through Bible stories. She found out that's the way to get his attention. That's what he's going to respond to. Then she took another couple of months and prayed about how she would present this to me from the way in which I was motivated, the way that I could hear. And she, she properly contextualized a, a passage from the book of Jeremiah and brought it to me and said, look, the, the temptation that Jeremiah is feeling is the same temptation that you're experiencing with your family. The same one that Jeremiah was dealing with with, with his family, um, the, the family of the, of the covenant community. And you know what? She got me. <laughs> she got me. Because she, she pressed me in a way that I could hear. And that's a great example of what a kingdom wife does. Number two, she, she gives the pressing. Number three, maybe this is the most important, verse 15. She builds the place of rest for her husband. She builds a home. See, Samson's wife, again, you see the contrast. Samson's wife ends up destroying him. What she does is leave him without, without any home whatsoever. Samson's final place is, is the dungeon. She, he's basically homeless. So Delilah actually takes away Samson's home from him. In contrast, we see what, what Aksa was pressing for. What's she pressing for here? She's pressing for a way to make a place of rest, to make a home for her, first for Othniel, then her children. So when you read here that she was given the Negev land, verse 15, what you should think of there is dry, okay? Dry, deserty land. If you've never been there, that's what you should think of when you hear Negev. I mean, it's nice land, but it's just deserty. It's dry. And in a place like that in Israel, like many places in the Near East, the issue is water. It's always about whether or not you have a water because that makes a difference between whether a place is inhabitable or not. You know, in Israel, very much, they, they, they check the level. They're always checking the level of the Sea of Galilee, <laughs> even today. They sort of check that like, like we check the stock market. You know, you wake up in the morning, you hear, okay, it's down two points. <laughs> That's like the level of the Sea of Galilee. That's what they're looking at. Why? Because water is the thing. Aksa recognizes that. And so she, when she comes to her husband, she presses her husband, then she presses her father, 
and say, look, you've given me this land, great. Can I have the water? Can I have the springs of water that are going to make this inhabitable so I can build a place of stability? So she rolls up her sleeves. She's resourceful. She improvises. She makes a place of rest. Now, you might be wondering, some of you have very different situations, like, how do I do that? What's important for me to do? Guess what? It depends. It depends on what? It depends on your guy. It depends on what it is that brings him to a place of rest. And it might be different for each one of you. But that's the goal. It happens in different ways. I can tell you again, uh, with my model, um, when, when Mary Kay and I were dating, this is how it began with us. Um, we didn't really have a lot of money. We didn't have a place to go, but she did have a car. I was living in New York City at the time, and what we did was we got in her car just to have some place to go. We drove up north of the city to this park called the Cloisters, and there was a castle there, and there was a stone wall, and we used to sit on the stone wall. There's nowhere else to sit, so we would sit on the stone wall and talk. And uh, very often, because of what I was involved with at the time, I would be kind of tired and kind of leaning over. And she, she would say to me, here, why don't you just lay your head in my lap? And so she offered her lap for me to lay my head down, which was a gift, friends, because as soon as I laid my head down in her lap, invariably, I fell asleep <laughs> and kind of crushed the conversation. You know, that was the end of the conversation. But I wake up, and there I was, my head in her lap. What was that? Well, that was her, just initially, a simple gesture, but it was in the very beginning, it was, it was her, this, this godly woman, giving me a place of rest. And she went on to do that for the next 30 years. It really became the paradigm of our relationship. What, that simple act that she gave to me there. Kingdom-centered wife gives the incentive, gives the pressing, gives the place of rest. What is the guy giving the woman in this kingdom-centered marriage? What is the husband of such a wife doing in this marriage? Well, the first thing he does, you can tell from this passage, is recognize the value of a kingdom-centered wife. That's the first thing he's doing. You know, a big theme of the book of Judges, if we were to go through it, look at these themes, is, is how women are viewed. That's a big theme of what the author is getting across in this book, how women are viewed. In the beginning, they're treasured. In the beginning, they're highly esteemed. And you can tell that society has gone way downhill. By the end of the book, women are disregarded. By the end of the book, you have these rather horrifying stories that show us that women are basically being treated like disposable objects. The author is making a point there that this is how you're gauging how close a society is to what God wants. It's how women are viewed. And what we have here is a kingdom husband who is treasuring his wife for her part in the operation. He's helping her to recognize that as a woman, what she's contributing to the operation, what she's doing for love is instrumental in what's going on. And then we see chapter 3, verse 7 through 11, second thing is that the exemplary judge is securing his wife by securing the land. 
Remember, this is the model couple here, the model judge, the first judge. And we actually know very little about him. Right? We don't know much about Othniel. We know his brother is. We know his tribe. But the one kind of important detail of his life the author wants us to know is who he's married to. And that seems to be the key uh, for Othniel's stability from which he arises to take very heavy responsibility on. And so you get these two men, Othniel and Samson, and you can contrast them in terms of the responsibility that they're ever able to take on. Othniel is able to rise here to take responsibility even for the larger, in the larger community. Whereas Samson can hardly take responsibility for anybody. I mean, he gets out there and he does his thing. He's never able to lead the Israelites into battle that would actually give a lasting peace. Never able to do that, not even once. And so we see a contrast here with Othniel who could take on Kushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Harathaim. Sounds almost like a rap song, doesn't it? Right? Kushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, right? Now, who was this guy? Well, most of your translations today, that verse, um, they'll just say Mesopotamia, because that's the Hebrew way of saying Mesopotamia. Aram Naharaim. Which means this guy is a king of Mesopotamia actually bringing his forces over to fight in Palestine. And a lot of scholars balk at this. They say, you know, we don't know who this guy is from other sources. And what's he doing all the way over in Palestine? But this actually is the point. What you have here, this is what kings would do. If they gained power in the ancient Near East... They would go around and they would try to expand their kingdom there to make it into an empire. And that's what they were doing. They were, they were empire building at this time, trying to empire build. So, which means that Othniel stood against someone who had amassed that much power to be able to reach all the way into Israelite territory. In other words, friends, what we're dealing with is the strongest enemy that's faced in this book. Now, I know it's written pretty quickly here. It goes by pretty fast. You might not notice this. But this is actually what's being, what we're being told is that this is the most powerful enemy that, that appears in the book of Judges. Othniel faces him and crushes him. Othniel defeats him. And consequently, he gives, he gives a place of security to his wife. He makes, a, he makes the land a place where she can be secure. And she can raise her family in security. For a whole generation, there is peace in the land. So you see, he secured her by bringing peace to her land. A very big job in their time. But he rose to the occasion. So before we come to a close here, I just want to drive that home. If you are a kingdom husband, this is what you're about. This is what you are doing for your wife. You're securing her. You're bringing peace to her land. How is that going? Are you getting to a place where your wife is not freaking out all the time or not having a meltdown all the time? 
Are you rising to that occasion of the things that are bringing her uh, a lack of peace? Breaking down her peace. How do you do that? Listen, very quickly, just three tips from the New Testament. If you're, if you're a kingdom husband saying, how do I secure my wife? Just three quick tips from the New Testament. Number one, pay attention to her. Pay attention to her. Listen. Listen to her. And not this kind of half-hearted, one-ear listening. Put down the remote. Put down the phone. Put down the keyboard. And listen. You say, that doesn't sound like a big deal. What kind of dragon-killing quest is that? You know, it's, it's not, friends. This is not rocket science. Tremendously effective for bringing your wife to a place of security. Number one, listen. Number two, wash her with your words. Wash her with your words. Speak to her. When she needs an assessment, give her an assessment of the situation. And she is looking for an assessment. Give her for an assessment of the situation. Maybe even tell her how the Bible might apply to that situation that she's in. Number two. Number three, find out what her threats are and deal with them. Find out what it is that makes her insecure and deal with it. You can make this woman secure. That is why God gave you to her. So how can we do this? How come we are able to do this for one another? Well, it's because, friends, the real bridegroom actually came and did exactly this. You know, we're just, as, as kingdom husbands, we're just little, uh, little imitations of, of the one who came, the real bridegroom, Jesus Christ, who came and did these same things for us, his bride. Because he took on the greatest enemies of our books, of our life's book, I can put it that way, sin and death. He came to secure us by crushing those enemies for us, and he did. The reason why we don't have to be afraid of the coronavirus, of all people, we don't have to be afraid. It's because he crushed death for us. These things that, that make us harrowed, these things that would come upon us and overwhelm us, he's taking care of them. You do not have to worry. And he took on that other greatest enemy of ours, our sin, as Patrick uh, so wonderfully did, leading us here in, the, in that time of confession. He took that on, knowing us deeply and, and answering that for us. So we may be besought by fears, overwhelmed with our problems. He answers those. And that's what we're going to do now. Come to this table, whether you are single or married, whether you're a man or woman, and receive the security that Christ has won for you. Let's come now. Please stand with me.